Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of World of Wallace and Gromit, the podcast. This week's bonus episode is a little different to previous ones, as I'll be looking a bit more at the origins of the art of animation itself, primarily from a technological point of view, which is something I find quite fascinating. Now, this is just findings from my own research, nothing professionally written or anything like that, so apologies if you think I've missed anything, but overall, I hope you find it interesting. Man has tried to convey movement in an image, even in prehistoric times, with cavemen painting beasts with multiple and detached legs, which, in the flickering firelight, suggests the animals were running. For instance, the cave paintings at Lascaux in France were created in this manner, with some animal legs detached from bodies. Another way early humans have shown movement is through the sequence of actions, painted on Greek vases and on Roman friezes. An example of this is the Parthenon frieze, which is a marble sculpture which runs along the upper part of the Parthenon's naos and depicts various scenes from mythology and presents them in a sequential style used to illustrate a story. These are both ways of showing kinetic events, but it wasn't until the 19th century that pictures themselves could actually move and be classified as animated. Up until the mid-1800s, there was no way of permanently capturing a photographic image. A man called William Henry Fox Talbot was unhappy with the current setup with the camera obscura, whereby the light was projected through a box and a lens to a frosted glass panel at the back on which a painter would apply colour where the light shone through. He set about developing a method for setting an image on paper using the light alone. After much experimentation, he found his answer. He exposed the image for a few seconds on chemically treated paper, and although there was no visible image initially, by soaking it in a particular solution, the photograph became clear. In 1880, Edward Muybridge used this technique to take photographs of a horse in motion. There had been attempts to do this before, but none were particularly successful, as the horse's movements were so rapid. Muybridge set up 24 cameras on a racetrack, triggered by tripwires, so that the paper in each camera would be exposed for a short time in quick succession. The result of this was 12 perfect pictures showing a horse's gallop, which allowed people to see for the first time that all four hooves of the horse left the ground simultaneously for a short period. Around this time, when photography was being developed, other people were designing popular optical toys, which gave the illusion of movement when manipulated. In 1825, Dr John Ayrton created an illusion of two images on alternate sides of circular card, becoming one when spun. He called this the thaumatrope. From the idea of fast-moving images merging into each other, Joseph Plateau developed the phenakistoscope in 1831, which showed a recurrent sequence of images round the edge of a spinning circle, viewed through slits on another circle which is also spinning. This creates the smooth flow of the illusion and deceives the eye into seeing one moving image. William George Horner's zoetrope was similar in look to that of the phenakistoscope and still showed repetitive cycles. However, it was the first device which attempted to make the moving image accessible for more than one person through the use of multiple slots around the circumference of the cylinder. When a person looked through the slots, they were able to see the moving image on the opposite inside edge of the cylinder. A step on from that 
was Emil Reynaud's Praxinoscope in 1877, in which viewers could see the moving image reflected in mirrors. Although at first glance it seems like there are many different variations of the same thing, if you take a more careful look, each one builds on the work of the previous. Only a few have been mentioned here, but the fundamental technologies of each is that they are all creating a moving image from a series of static ones. These Victorian toys were the first of their kind to show animations. Up until now, there were chronological images, but no machines to allow them to move, so they couldn't be classified as animation. The next goal for the Victorian inventors was to merge the photograph with the moving image, and this was a technological discovery to revolutionise the world of entertainment. Reno was the first to develop his original creation further in this way, and the theatre praxinoscope allowed a larger audience to view the animation, due to increasing the projection size. By placing the mirror drum and image cylinder in a wooden box, the painted images could then be projected with a painted background, but these sequences were still only a couple of seconds long, as they were limited by the number of pictures on the paper strip. However, in 1892, Reynaud painted images on transparent gelatine squares, each connected with leather bands and holes in metal strips running along the image reel. This reel of images had to be turned by hand, but was the basic technology of the film spool used in filmmaking for many years. As a result, 500 pictures could be played in a sequence lasting 15 minutes, and the image would stay in focus while moving. Reynolds' Theatre Optique show became hugely popular. Many of his animations had around 700 images and made beautiful, hand-drawn, simple, yet effective animations. In my opinion, this is the point when optical experiments and toys become early cinema. I think that the theatre praxinoscope was the invention that established the essence of film, telling a story to an audience through a moving image. Before this, the optical toys just showed actions as the technology has not been developed for them to work for long enough to tell stories. I also think that this is where stop-motion animation breaks away from hand-drawn animation. Stop-motion animation was developed a little later than the main branches of animation, and in order to find this point, we must continue along the route of the history of cinematic film. The next major film device created animation history, because it had the ability to play the frames at 48 frames per second. This was much faster than anything before, and the invention also played photographic images rather than just illustrations. The kinetoscope was invented by William Dixon and Thomas Edison, and consisted of a box with a small hole in the top and a handle at the side. By turning this handle, a long reel of wafer-thin film passed over a gap in the top to allow people to view it. Although this machine only allowed for one viewer at a time, it created a more atmospheric feel to the animations, so even without sound, the viewer could feel very involved in the action. Technically, it was far ahead of the previous inventions, as there was a lot more physical space for the film strip inside the box, meaning a longer, more complex plot to the animation could be developed. The kinetoscope also used a light to illuminate the frames, which had not been done before, but allowed the viewer to gain a clearer, brighter view of the image. To go with the kinetoscope, Dixon and Edison also created the kinetograph. 
This was a rapid capture technology, which applied Muybridge's pioneering work in order to photograph movement in many consecutive images. Finally, there was the ability to capture and project short film sequences of real people in action. In this revolutionary period of the late 19th century, the quality of Finnish film with regards to image sharpness and smoothness of playback improved as their technology developed. In 1894, Antoine Lumière, a businessman whose company manufactured and distributed photographic equipment, was invited to a display of Edison's peephole kinetoscope in Paris. When he returned, he presented his two sons with a piece of kinetoscope film and the challenge of improving on his invention. They decided that one of the main problems was that the kinetograph, which captured the images, was huge and incredibly heavy, which confined it to one room, therefore creating limited subject filming possibilities. Secondly, the kinetoscope only allowed one viewer at a time to see the film, which was not very efficient and limited the device to the few that could afford it. They experimented during the winter of 1894, and by 1895 had created their own device, which they called the cinematograph. This invention combined camera with printer and projector, was hand-cranked, and was much smaller than the kinetoscope. It also showed the images at 12 frames per second, which was much slower than the kinetoscope's 48 frames per second, but it meant that it was a lot quieter, as there was less film to pass through in the same time. From March 1895, the brothers showed their invention at a series of private screenings with invited guests only, while they applied for patents in countries outside France. The films they showed were of real life around them, such as workers leaving the factory where they made the photography equipment. These actuality films, as they were known, became very popular as they authentically captured day-to-day life, which no one had ever done before. The first public screening of a collection of films using the cinematograph took place in December the same year, in Paris, and was such a success that within four months they had opened cinematograph theatres, later known as cinemas, in London, Brussels, Belgium and New York. By 1903, their catalogue of films had grown to 2,113 films, but with fewer than 50 of them being made by the brothers. Their invention excited the world with the possibilities of film and sparked ideas in many entrepreneurs on how they could use the technology to bring their own touch to the industry. George Méliès was in the audience of the Lumière's first public screening of their invention in 1896 and approached them afterwards with the intention to buy one of their inventions. After they refused, he visited Robert Paul in England to try and obtain a similar camera. Paul had replicated the kinetoscope, which was not patented in England, and from that developed a camera with fellow pioneer Bert Akers, which they improved upon in the years to come. Paul allowed Méliès to view his camera projector, and by April 1896 screened his first film shot with a camera he had made. Having taken over his father's company, he had enough money to buy the Theatre Robert Houdin when it came on the market, and this was where his film career took off. Méliès was an accomplished stage illusionist and wanted to use cinema to show people more than what they could see in a stage performance. However, it was entirely by accident that he discovered the technique of stop-action film. During filming of his Place de l'Opera, the camera, which was prone to tearing the film or getting stuck, took a minute to release the film and continue capturing. In this time, all the people and vehicles had moved, and when he watched it back, 
Melies saw a Madame Bastille omnibus suddenly change into a hearse. Two days later, he then used this stop-action, or stop-motion, to make the first metamorphosis of men into women, and to make people disappear. This was a huge success, and throughout his films afterwards, he continued to use cinema as a natural extension of magical arts. Stop-motion techniques also allowed him to create incredible visual illusions alongside real people, such as in Voyage to the Moon, which was completely unheard of at the time. From then, this opened doorways for puppeteers who combined their art form with film to create moving characters. The first stop-motion puppet film was created in 1907 by J. Stuart Blackton and his partner Albert E. Smith. This animation was called The Humpty Dumpty Circus and involved wooden toys belonging to Smith's daughter of animals and circus performers, but unfortunately the film has been lost over time. When asked about how he created it, Smith said it was a tedious process. Little did he know that this tedious process would spark the imaginations of children and adults alike. For with stop-motion animation technology, you could give life to anything. The possibilities are endless. Fast forward through many different puppet animators and you come to Dave Sproxton and Peter Lord, two schoolboys in the 1960s who would go on to found our favourite film studios, Aardman Animations. Their first studio was in Dave's parents' kitchen and the boys started out using a 16mm Bolex camera belonging to Dave's father. Animation back then was very different to how it is now. You had to animate blind. This means you had no idea how your animation was going to turn out until you got the result back a few days later from the developers. The boys started out experimenting with hand-drawn animation but then moved on to clay and plasticine because very few people in Britain were doing so and because clay models could be reused and changed with minimal cost. Influenced by the work of Ray Harryhausen and The Magic Roundabout, they set about creating short animated films. Both Lord and Sproxton's fathers worked in the BBC, and so were able to talk with producers about their work. One in particular liked their ideas, and so while still at school and university, they contributed short, silent animations to the programme Vision On for Deaf Children. After receiving their first paycheck, they opened a bank account in the name of Ardman Animations after one of their first animations about a clumsy superhero, and the Ardman Company was born. The rest, one might say, is history. What do you think of that then, Gromit? On a completely different tack, this week's review is of Debbie Brown's book, Wallace and Gromit, Cracking Celebration Cakes. Published in 2006, this book contains 21 cake decorating recipes for you to make your own Wallace and Gromit cakes. Now, these are certainly not your run-of-the-mill cake decorations, and so she includes a helpful techniques and equipment section and how to model Wallace and Gromit at the beginning, before getting started on the cake designs themselves. She also assumes that you know how to bake a cake proficiently, so don't buy this book expecting to be taught that. The cake designs themselves have been taken straight from images of the films, or standalone Wallace and Gromit images, which possibly makes recreating them more of a challenge, as everyone knows what they should look like. Overall, the cakes in the book have a definite Ardman style to them, and would be perfect for the birthday of any Wallace and Gromit fan. The instructions are well written, but I reckon it's not the kind of book for you if you're impatient or don't like getting your fingers sticky. All's well that ends well, that's what I say. That brings this episode to a close. I hope you found it interesting. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Cheerio!
from me, from Gromit, from Arj. Au revoir, chucks.